From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, in Fulton County, another guilty plea in Fannie Willis's election conspiracy case. How do you plead to aiding and abetting false statements and writings and under accusation 23SC190514? Guilty. That's Trump attorney Jenna Ellis. And a report from ABC News says Mark Meadows cut an immunity deal to testify in the federal case against Donald Trump. I'm Patricia Murphy. How the Georgia Supreme Court ruling upholding the state's abortion law could put the issue front and center in the 2024 elections. And I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. House Republicans shoot down yet another candidate for speaker, but they've got someone ready to go how Donald Trump may have helped sink Tuesday's frontrunner. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Uh, Tia Mitchell, um, as we record this podcast, your long national nightmare, and you've lived personally maybe over, the House may actually be set to get a speaker. It's looking more hopeful than it has since October 3rd when Kevin McCarthy was removed. It's been a long, I would say month, but it hasn't even been a month. It's been, you know, 22 days. Um, But it does. It looks like there actually may be a new speaker today. You know, Patricia Murphy, one of the things that I'm awfully glad about, and I'll bet you share this, is at a certain point, it's really it gets really tiring to talk about this same story over and over again. As journalists, you can't bring a whole lot new to it every day. Well, I differ on this Do topic you? a little bit because it is just so unheard of to have a situation yeah. like this. It's so unprecedented. It's so ahistorical that to me, it's not a national nightmare. It's a national dessert buffet for a reporter. <laughs> but you can even get full on dessert after a while. So I, I mean, I'll be okay if they wrap it up. But I have I have found this endlessly fascinating. And I think we've learned a ton about Republicans through these weeks, which we thought were just going to be business as usual. Absolutely. I have to agree with that. I still think at a certain point, there's only so many ways you can tell this story. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hey there, I'm Stephen Schumacher, president of Only in Cartersville, Bartow. Need a break from election season? Escape the hustle and bustle in Cartersville, Georgia, where you can start your day with a rejuvenating hike at Red Top Mountain State Park and wind down at Timberline Glamping's newest location at Pine Acres on Lake Alatoona. Looking for more fun by the water? Check out Terminus Wake Park or grab a kayak and paddle down the Etowah River. And don't forget to mark your calendars now for Barbecue and Bruce Fest in downtown Cartersville on April 20th. Unwind where relaxation meets adventure and create memories that can be made only in Cartersville, Bartow. When you prepare your Georgia income tax return, please consider adding a few dollars to Line 33 to support the Georgia Cancer Research Fund. Managed by Georgia Corps, these funds go to researchers hard at work at Georgia's research institutions and medical schools, finding new ways to fight cancer. They're developing new treatments and new tools for diagnosis, all to save lives. It's easy to do. Just look for Line 33. More information is available at georgiacancerinfo.org. Well, Tia and Patricia, yesterday was a a really fascinating and um, important day in uh, uh, the uh, indictments that Donald Trump is facing, not only here in Georgia, but also Jack Smith's federal 
uh, January 6th indictment against Trump in Washington. Um, we know now, of course, that we had another plea deal in the Fulton County case. Jenna Ellis, who had been Trump's lawyer throughout much of his effort to overturn the election, uh, took a guilty plea. She ple pleaded guilty to one felony charge like the others who have already uh, taken guilty pleas. She won't serve any prison time, um, but uh, she did have to write a letter to uh, the people of Georgia, which she's already done, apologizing for her actions. But what was also fascinating about Jenna Ellis, and we'll talk about it in a minute, is her tearful apology, which she gave in open court. So that happened here. Meanwhile, ABC News um, reported that um, their sources have told them that Mark Meadows, who of course was Donald Trump's final and probably closest chief of staff. I remember this is somebody who was tied at Donald Trump's hip during his presidency. He even flew um, with Trump to uh, uh, the hospital when Trump uh, had COVID. He apparently last spring made an, arra an arrangement for an immunity deal with Jack Smith which would require him to testify truthfully to all he knows about Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election in exchange for escaping prosecution himself. So all of this, I guess, by, is our way of saying, Patricia, there's a lot that Donald Trump has to be unhappy about from yesterday. Oh, yes. And he's, in fact, uh, put out a statement on Truth Social to say he doesn't know why Mark Meadows, who is very close to him, would be talking to prosecutors. And even though he does have this kind of semi-gag order on him, he is still talking about um, the prosecutor, Jack Smith. He is talking about Mark Meadows, talking about cowards who flip against him. So he certainly is telegraphing how he feels. We don't have to guess how he feels in this moment. Uh, the Mark Meadows news that a ABC is reporting is fascinating because this report says that this all took place last spring. Of course, he does not have an immunity deal here in Atlanta. And we know that because he is under indictment right now um, for multiple felony counts. And uh, Mark Meadows not only uh, was is and was very close to Donald Trump, he was a very frequent presence here in Georgia during the election runoff when Donald Trump was trying to flip the results. He, Mark Meadows, flew to Cobb County, went and was denied access to Cobb County ballot stations as they were um, doing the audit of the signatures there. He was on the phone when Donald Trump was talking to Brad Raffensperger um, in that famous phone call saying, I need you to find me 11,000 votes and some change. So Mark Meadows was a an integral part to Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election here in Georgia, that he's got this immunity deal. We don't know what that does to his role right. down here. He does not have immunity. He will be expected to testify, but there will be information coming out of that federal case, presumably, depending on the timing of these cases, that uh, would very much implicate him or could implicate him here down in the state. Yeah, well, let's talk about the synergy between the two trials, not just Mark Meadows, but of course, uh, uh, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesborough, uh, Jenna Ellis, Scott Hall, all who have pled guilty in Fulton County and could very easily be called to testify in the federal uh, trial as well, although they're, they're on, uh, some of them are unindicted co-conspirators. Trump is the only defendant in that case. Tia, here's what else, before we leave Meadows, is interesting. Um, he, of course, made 
public statements throughout the post-election period saying the election was rigged. He wrote a book in which he said the election was rigged. But ABC News and other news agencies have also reported this. All along, he was telling Donald Trump that the election wasn't rigged, that he had lost. Yeah. Mark Meadows is interesting because he was there, of course. He was the chief of staff. He was right there with Trump all the way. But as these cases started to mount, what he started to say was, I was just doing my job. I was just letting Trump know, you know, what people are saying. He wanted me to help look into the election. So I went down to Georgia and I looked into the election. I was giving him the best advice I could give as his chief of staff. Don't punish me for doing my job. If the guy who I work for said that he believes this, that doesn't mean I believed it. That just means the guy who I work for believed it. And so I was forced to look into it. Now, so far, the indications are that the courts are not buying that. You know, he tried to get the Fulton County charges moved to a federal court saying it was part of his federal duties. That did not work. Um, And so I think that's why I think a lot of people believe what ABC is reporting, that Mark Meadows is starting to cooperate because a lot of people think that Mark Meadows is trying, just like everyone else who's starting to strike plea deals, that they are worried that the trial to come or the charges that he's facing could actually stick. I mean, again, we don't know. We can't confirm yet the ABC report, and we don't know how that affects the Fulton County case where Mark Meadows is a co-defendant. But so far, the other arguments he's tried to make to defend his actions don't seem like they're working. So is this his next attempt to try to perhaps save himself some heartache? Yeah, we're, we're going to watch that very closely. And who knows if he's made this immunity deal, which ABC News is the only news organization to have reported so far. To the best of my knowledge, no other major news organization has independently verified it, but most of them are reporting the ABC uh, News. Let's very quickly point out the difference between immunity and what's happened here in Fulton County, which is plea deals. Um, Patricia, clearly... When you make a plea deal, as we know four people in uh, Fannie Willis's case have done, um, you're not uh, you're escaping prosecution, but you're pleading guilty to certain crimes. Yes, and a um, you know a defense among Republicans um, here in the state and nationally, or a talking point, I would really call it, is that. Uh, Fonnie Willis has overcharged these cases, that she is twisting these co-defendants in a vice so tight that they have no choice but to come forward and uh, find a plea agreement that they can work with, um, if only to save themselves um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and the potential of going to jail. Um, That, in fact, is exactly what Donald Trump was saying on Truth Social last night, saying these people are have to make a choice between their families and their fortunes and their ability to make money or just go ahead and take a plea deal. But I think when you see Jenna Ellis in court weeping and saying, if I feel like I if I knew then what I know now, I never would have joined this 
defense. I never would have tried to do this. I trusted people with more experience than me. Um, and in that case, we assume she's talking about Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. who she was working for and with. Um, I trusted these people and I didn't do my due diligence and I deeply regret it. I mean, it, and weeping in front of the court, that really puts a different face on it. This doesn't look like somebody who is just looking for the easy way out. This looks like a young woman who really is very much regretting her role in this entire scheme. I'm glad to hear you say that because I had the exact same reaction watching that. I thought she was sincere. Um, There are people who today are, in fact, very cynical about that. They're suggesting that uh, this is just um, a a, a ruse in some way of hers. But I didn't get that sense at all. I get the sense that this was a young lawyer excited about working on a major case with someone of – uh, Rudy Giuliani's former statue, at least, a stature, and, and gets caught up like so many people who find themselves in the Trump orbit and end up getting burned because of it. And what's just as troubling is the people who believe that Jenna Ellis's tears were a ruse and she doesn't really mean it, they're coming from the left and the right. I was reading um, there's a conservative activist on social media who was saying basically she had to do what she had to do because the deep state was after her and there's no way to get away from these charges until you tell the prosecutors what they want to hear. And so and that was someone who is a supporter of Jenna Ellis trying to kind of convince the far right that she's still one of them, even after she said what she had to say in open court. And I think it's troubling on all aspects, but that's why these letters are going to be so important. That's why whatever these people who have um, agreed to the plea deals, what they say from here on out is so important. Um particularly what they have to say if they're called under oath to mm-hmm. testify. Um, and, and quite frankly, you know, Jenna Ellis is the latest example, but will she continue trying to fundraise off of, you know, um, defending herself and her actions? Because some of those fundraising links as of yesterday were still live, okay. you know, um, we'll, we'll know how sincere she is, whether you're someone who, um, approved of what she did or someone who disapproved of what she did, you'll know how sincere she was on Tuesday by her actions going forward. Well, and we may never know how sincere she is. Yeah. She has a <laughs> podcast that is very popular um, and the right wing uh is it like a podcast fear? I don't know. Where are we right now? <laughs> um, uh, she has a million followers on Twitter. She is a public person. Her tw- her podcast is about far-right issues. She, I actually took a listen to one of them yesterday. Uh, she was saying, as of last week, she was very proud to work for Donald Trump. So is she sincere? Is she not? More more relevant to the fact is she is now going to be required to share documents, share text messages, share phone calls, share conversations. Um, we know a lot of people in the Trump world tape their conversations with people, whether anybody in the room knows it or not. I'm not saying Jen and Alice did, but she will have had access because she was so closely tied to Giuliani. I don't know when we ever saw him without her there. She was inside the room with Giuliani at, on most occasions. She will have been had a front row 
to the events that unfolded. And so her sincerity is not really what she brings to the table. Oh, I although I do think these images matter because these were the same people convincing Georgians that their election had been stolen, you know, and that made an impact. So I do think her words and images are important. More relevant will be what she's giving prosecutors. And I think it was um, important enough to them to give her this deal. So um, can we uh, spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about what the four defendants who have taken pleas now in the Fulton County case, the different circles that they represent in terms of what they may be able to give testimony on, okay? Let's start with Sidney Powell. Um, Sidney Powell, and you'll all you know, add to this, I'm sure, we know certainly that she will be able to testify as to what happened in Coffee County since she led the effort to have uh, a team of people down there uh, breach the voting machines and take out sensitive voting information. So she can certainly will be able to, uh, we assume, testify against Misty Hampton and Kathy Latham, who are two other defendants from the Coffee County case, who have so far not taken plea deals. But beyond that, she was involved in any number of White House meetings, Patricia, that talked about things like seizing voting machines and the like. So she represents kind of two buckets of Fonnie Willis's conspiracy uh, prosecution. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. In that um, December Oval Office meeting, uh, there was conversation about her being made a special counsel. Mm -hmm. Um, She was, um, according to testimony that I know Tia heard during the January 6 hearings um, uh, with the special counsel's office, uh, they said that she was unspooling any number of conspiracies, that it was all a plot by China and Hugo Chavez to make sure um, that uh, the election outcome um, was flipped and uh, that she had a, a county in Georgia that could prove it all. And so, yes, she has been in lots and lots of these meetings. Um, I think also it's important to just take a a quick step back. I don't want to derail our conversation, uh, and maybe we'll pick up on this in a second, but just to talk about kind of the the political fallout of all of this. I mean, this took a hold of our entire Republican apparatus here in the state of Georgia. Um, And we were all there when it was happening in the beginning, and now we're seeing all of this is like reading the last chapter of that book um, to see where this is all going. Um, but continue with your with uh, the other people no, I, I know I th- we've th- been hearing from. Well, I think what you're okay, but just to emphasize what you're saying, this has been news throughout from from the election day forward. Ever since Trump began this campaign to overturn the election results, it has captivated us almost continually as journalists in political circles, elected officials, um, and others, it's, it's, you're right. This is maybe the final chapter in something that we have been consumed by for uh, three years at this point. I want to say I, I uh, chuckle a little bit when you say maybe the final chapter because at this point now we're almost to 2024 and Trump is back on the ballot. Right. I should have said of this volume. Yeah, <laughs> you know. The final chapter of this volume of this story. I'm pretty sure Greg must be working on the next book by right. this point. Right. L- l- let me let me ask you about it. Okay, let's go through the other defendants who have pl- pleaded guilty if you don't mind, Tia. Uh Kenneth Chesborough. 
He was um, the uh, uh, author, in many ways, of the fake elector scheme, um, and therefore, uh, certainly, which he hatched with John Eastman, who continues to be a defendant in the conspiracy trial. So Chesborough, uh, if he testifies truthfully, uh, might have a lot to say about John Eastman's role in that and David Schaefer's role, among a couple of other uh, fake electors. But we single out Schaefer, of course, because he was the far- former uh, chair of the state Republican Party. Yeah, and I want to start by preferencing this to give a shout out to our colleague, David Wickert. He um, wrote an article on Tuesday with a very handy headline for our discussion, How Guilty Pleas Could Fuel Fulton Election Probe. So he's my cheat sheet for this discussion. He's, he's my notes. My oh, notes are okay. all Dave Wickert Gr- notes. Great, yes. <laughs> so David Wickert is um, so so smart and knows so much about these cases. So, you know, Chesbro, I think you're right. When it comes, the, the interesting thing about the Fonnie Willis case is it's wide ranging and it has these different segments. So the fake elector portion of the case, Chesbro, in theory can shed some light on that, particularly because what we publicly know, there had been attempts to distance President Trump from the fake elector scheme, you know, to not necessarily directly connect it to saying this is what he thought up, this is what he wanted, was he in the loop? I think there are some questions about that. And so the I wonder if Chesbro and, and the others who have insight into the fake elector scheme, I would imagine that Fonnie Willis will be asking them to see if there's more evidence directly connecting that to Trump. So, uh, uh Thank you for that. Um, we already talked about Jenna Ellis, essentially, Giuliani's partner. She was involved in White House meetings. She communicated. We I think there's like 300-plus texts that she and Mark Meadows exchanged. So she obviously can implicate a lot of people. And then there's Scott Hall, um, who is also part of that Coffee County uh, breach of, of uh, data. And Dave Wickard points out could also be uh, somebody could testify about the plans to harass election workers, Patricia. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, There are so many different pieces of this story, but we know that a number of people were involved in multiple layers of it. And so as Fonnie Willis continues to build her RICO case against Donald Trump, they all, I think, are going to be important to eventually finding their way to Donald Trump. Okay, we've got to get to a break, but but real quickly, to summarize this segment, I want to point out um, uh, that um, our colleague Chris Joyner uh, pointed us all to an article in the National Review, which is written by a, a conservative who, a columnist who says, Fonnie Willis's charges so far amount to nothing. Nobody's even serving prison time. She doesn't know anything about the, this is not a RICO case. And I get why Josh McCoon, the chairman of now of the state Republican Party, would send that out. My only reaction to that, Tia, is I, I don't think that uh, uh, McCarthy understands much about how Georgia's RICO law works. She's building her RICO case by getting each of these people moving up the ladder, uh, pleading guilty yeah. as part of the conspiracy. I'm no lawyer, but 
Um, I feel like after my, you know, the law degree I earned by watching Law and Order Special <laughs> Victims Unit uh, <laughs> tells me that when you try to flip people, of course they're not going to, part of the deal is making a deal. So they're not going to take this, the serious, more serious charges come off the table because it's part of a negotiation. But the fact that part of the negotiation is these people, some of them are pleading guilty to felonies, to me, lends to the seriousness of what they were facing and what they feared they could be found guilty of. Well, also, we have to keep in mind that Fannie Willis has an immense amount of experience in racketeering cases. She has brought on a specialist in racketeering cases Mm -hmm. to lead this trial for her. She really um, kind of came to all of our attention when she led the racketeering case against the Atlanta school teachers. I have long said that it is politically harder to indict school teachers in a community than it is to indict a former president. And uh, she did get her convictions in that in that case not all of them um but she did uh she did find the RICO statute to be useful enough in situations like that and situations like the young thug case that I think that this is an area where she's very confident in her approach to how she's executing these cases. And coincidentally, while the National Review published a column uh, denigrating how Fannie Willis was pursuing this case, the New York Times this morning, in fact, reported that Fannie Willis was having enormous success in working her way up the ladder toward the big fish uh, uh, defendants in the case. All right, we got to get to our first break of uh, the show today. But when we come back, we're going to look at how officials on both sides of the aisle are spinning the state Supreme Court decision that kept Georgia's restrictive abortion law in place. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com podcasts. You'll get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcasts so you'll always know what's really going on. Tia Mitchell, the state Supreme Court yesterday in, an, I think, a decision that surprised virtually, well, few people, uh, said that Georgia's six-week, basically, abortion restriction law should remain uh, in uh, place. They rejected the arguments that the plaintiffs made that um, it couldn't be legal because at the time they passed it, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. But let's talk about the politics of it. Um, Clearly, as we saw responses coming in from Republicans and Democrats, we realized just how crucial an issue this is going to be in the 2024 election cycle. Yeah, I think Democrats think this is an issue, maybe not the issue, maybe not top of voters' minds, but they think that this is one of the issues that if they put it on voters' radars, 
that they think that'll help Democrats win. And so we saw Democrats and Democrat um, aligned groups, if you will, immediately criticize this decision, immediately what the Democratic Party of Georgia sent all these emails saying, don't forget, Rich McCormick uh, doesn't support abortion um, rights and Buddy Carter doesn't support abortion rights. And, you know, they sent one for um, just about every Republican member of of Georgia's delegation in Congress. So um, and then, of course, we had Republicans who were applauding the decision and saying it was the right thing to do. And they were happy that the, quote unquote, heartbeat bill is allowed to stand in Georgia. Uh, Patricia, uh, we can talk about a lot of people, and you're welcome to bring up anyone you um, want to here. But I'd like to talk briefly about the um, polar opposite statements that came from uh, Senator John Ossoff and Governor Brian Kemp. And, of course, it's particularly interesting because we know that Brian Kemp, uh, we don't know, but we speculate that he very well could launch a bid to run against Ossoff in 2026. Yeah, we know that he's... Obviously, considering what to do next because he's term limited. I think a lot of us in the chattering class have um, started talking about him as an obvious statewide candidate again. And certainly that would be welcome news to uh, people in Washington who would love to see Brian Kemp run for Senate against John Ossoff. Um, The Republicans up there think that he would be by far their strongest candidate Mm. um, against Ossoff. Um, So uh, their statements released, as we would expect on such a polarized issue, were extremely polarized. Brian Kemp said today's victory represents one more step toward ending this litigation and ensuring the lives that of all Georgians are protected. John Ossoff, on the other hand, called the anti-abortion law one of the most extreme in the nation and called on Kemp and the General Assembly to repeal this extreme abortion ban immediately, which, of course, they're not going to do. Um, But politically, I agree with Tia. I think that the statements that we saw from the Democratic Party of Georgia, uh, while not surprising, were very important. These statements were uh, shot out like a rocket immediately after the ruling came out, hitting Rich McCormick in that sixth congressional district that Mm -hmm. Democrats are very hopeful could be redrawn to become more competitive. They also sent out a statement about Governor Kemp. Democrats see this as a hugely important issue for them. The history of this issue, however, in elections, um, makes me a little skeptical, although things could change. I thought very much going into the 2022 elections that the um, abortion issue, particularly the fact that Roe v. Wade had just been overturned, I thought that that would be a huge motivating factor for Georgians. The AJC conducted a poll of all issues um, in September of 2022, and just 5% of Georgians said that abortion was their top issue, and that would be the issue that they were voting on. That came behind cost of living, threats to democracy, jobs economy, immigration, border security, guns, crime, and climate change. So if you isolate abortion as an issue— Democrats have a lot of success. We saw that in Kansas. There was a referendum and that very conservative state that won um, uh, in order to keep abortion legal in Kansas with 59 percent of the vote. If it's the only issue, it's not even really very close. If it's one of all of the issues, it's a lot harder for Democrats to take to the bank. I think that is exactly right, Tia. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's just one piece of baggage that a Republican 
who opposes abortion carries uh, with her or him, but certainly not the heaviest of all the pieces of baggage. But as Patricia points out, you isolate it, and it leads to the and and it's and uh, uh, you know inevitably uh, pro-choice issues win. But that leads to this false understanding, impression of how important it is in in a broader election campaign. This Patricia points out, right? I, and I think it's it's all the things. So, will one candidate win on abortion alone? Maybe not. But if voters on any given race are weighing abortion and the economy and um, the cost of goods at the grocery store and health care and education policy, it becomes part of the overall conversation about who you want and what values you want them to have. And, you know, a lot of Republicans we know, especially, you know, at the congressional level, at the the General Assembly level, they have very conservative districts that they represent by and large. But when you get into a swingier district, and we don't know if ultimately Georgia will have to draw new maps and things like that, but on the in the districts where they are swingier, that's where you could see these conversations about where Republicans stand on abortion in particular become more of an issue. I'll also say that, you know, one of the kind of litmus tests most recently in Georgia was the U.S. Senate race um, with Warnock and Herschel Walker. And again, abortion wasn't the issue. Herschel Walker was a very flawed candidate. But you'll remember that Warnock's stance on abortion was used against him, you know, that he's a pastor who not only supports abortion rights, but won't vocalize any limitations that he would put on abortion. He says that he thinks it's between a woman, a doctor and her family. And he would not say even, you know, would he not support late term abortions or things like that. And it again, not saying that it was the only issue, but in that case, it wasn't something that uh, tanked his campaign. Yeah. Um, and the question of whether it's baggage for a Republican candidate, it really just depends, to Tia's point, what your district looks like yeah. and who's voting. Our polling show that it's very popular among Republican voters. Um, and uh, Stacey Abrams and uh, Raphael Warnock's decision not to articulate any limits proved to be a bit of a problem for some independent voters that we talked to. So they're like, well, where, where, what are we talking about here? So once you get into the weeds, um, it's a little difficult. But I think if you're if you're portraying a candidate as a whole as, quote, too extreme, and here's one example, I think that that can be effective in a swing district with a lot of suburban women, um, although... It just didn't. That's just not the way it turned out in 2022. Brian Kemp just didn't. It just didn't slow his momentum at all. And and part of that was because of the pro-life Republican voters who came out for him. Yeah, you're you're making that point much better than I did. Thank you for for that correction. Um, let me ask you about what we can expect in the legislative session. Um, we 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 suspect that there may not be. Well, let me let you characterize it, Patricia. Certainly. The people who are against abortion are going to want to continue 
carving out more uh, legislation that will stop women from getting abortions, whether it's a medical abortion, whether it's uh, a zero, uh, you know, no abortion in the state at all. How is this all going to play out in the legislative session, do we think? Well, Republican leaders have been really clear that they don't want to relitigate this while it's in litigation, so to speak. They, anytime that we ask them about, would you be in favor of a full abortion ban? Would you take this to um, uh, even a shorter duration? Is that something that you're looking for? Is that something you would sign? Which we have asked of Governor Kemp. And uh, they have all said, well, we want to see what happens in the courts. This ruling yesterday was really just a partial ruling. It was simply uh, ruling on the question of was it, is it, can it remain constitutional because it would have been unconstitutional when it was passed in 2019, more than likely since Roe v. Wade at that point was still in effect. And so this will continue to go through the courts. And so I don't we do not expect any major abortion debate the way we did in 2019. That just felt like it was about to rip those two chambers apart. And uh, we don't expect that replay right now because this is still in the courts. More, more narrow, tailored legislation. I would certainly expect um, individual members to introduce, you know, would it get a hearing? Would it get a debate? Would it get a vote? I think that is something that um, leaders would probably discourage for now. Patricia, when we talked about this um, off uh, air yesterday, you raised that interesting question about where does the whole notion of personhood stand in the uh, case that's been attempted to overturn the six weeks uh, ban. And we don't really quite know exactly where it stands in all of this, but we do know that um, it's something Republicans believe in deeply, that from the time you have a fetus, essentially, it's entitled to the rights of a human being, a person. Mm -hmm. Well, it is in the law, and the law stands. So the personhood language that is in HB 481 remains in effect as well. Um, And it got down to the level of granularity that uh, the law instructs fetuses would be eligible for child support payments, um, uh, for uh, all kinds of any any rights of of, uh, any human. I mean, it really defines an embryo as a human, um, or a a fetus rather as a human, um, uh, rather than as anything in a kind of a gray legal area. Yeah. Um, it's just really, it's, it's just an interesting layer to this that remains very, very controversial. Right. And I think there's a lot of unsettled policy when it comes to the personhood aspect. Yes, Maya has Maya probably our colleague has tried to do a good bit of reporting to find out well how many people filed for child support, you know. Um and a lot of that is very unclear. And I agree um one of the things that um Patricia I think mentioned and I wanted to um just kind of co-sign that is I agree that our our general assembly probably isn't inclined to further limit abortions because it's such a touchy subject. But medication and access to um, abortion pills, those types of things, I could see. I agree completely with Patricia that I could see some discussion around that. How, um, where abortions are legal or when abortions are legal, how 
can those abortions be conducted? Yes. And how can they be accessed? Can the doctor be out of state? Do you Mm -hmm. need to go in person? Um, Who can prescribe it? How can it be received through the mail? Do you have to go to a pharmacy? Um, All of those details are ways to further limit access to abortion without having kind of the, the full fledged debate about um, about whether or not it uh, should be legal at six weeks. So as we conclude uh, the discussion in this segment of the show, I'd like to bring it back to the politics for just a moment. Um, we should point out, and we did it on, on the show yesterday, but it's worth repeating today, I think, Tia. Um, President Biden's campaign manager said today's decision in Georgia, a big swing state, is a direct result of Donald Trump, Brian Kemp, and MAGA Republican attacks on a woman's fundamental right to make her own health care decisions. As a MAGA Repu- as MAGA Republicans running for president champion a national abortion ban, the stakes could not be higher. An important statement out of the White House, uh, out of the I'm sorry, the Biden campaign in this swing state of Georgia. And again, what she's trying to do is put it as put it in the framework of the stakes, what's at stake as people consider who to support for president in 2024. So again, in in the Biden-Harris administration, it's not saying abortion is the only thing at stake because, you know, there are many other issues where they're trying to create contrasts with, with Republicans. But I think they think abortion is a potent one. And that's like a point I raised the other day. There have been some examples where in isolation, abortion has been mm-hmm. on the ballot and has, and again, abortion was the issue. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, pro-choice wins. Yeah. And I think it is a slightly different um conversation and and much more to Democrats favor right now um, the Supreme Court should the Supreme Court have its current makeup and should those people be making these decisions should Roe v Wade have stood the polling on that is very clear that 70 percent of Georgians mm-hmm. believe that Roe v Wade should have stood when you get into the details of the six-week abortion ban um, it is uh, it's much more split but on that larger conversation of the Supreme Court's role in all of this um, I do think that that accrues to um, national Democrats' favor. All right. Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, thank you for a really um, good conversation about the state Supreme Court's uh, decision yesterday. This isn't over with. It goes back to Judge Robert McBurney's state court, where it's it's conceivable, although we don't know what McBurney might do, new arguments could be raised about whether the law violates uh, Georgia's privacy statute. And um, we'll just keep following this story as it moves forward. We got to take our final break of the show today, but when we come back, the debt ceiling deadline is weeks away. War continues to rage in Ukraine and Israel, and the U.S. House still, Tia Mitchell, cannot conduct any business. We'll talk about the chaos around the race for speaker. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. 
Our colleagues at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you informed on all the developments in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with the Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. Sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter, as all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. All right, Tia Mitchell, you're up. We still don't have a speaker of the U.S. House. Tom Emmer had to withdraw yesterday after the MAGA forces really came down on him, including Donald Trump himself, who's kept a certain distance from all of this, at least publicly, but weighed in heavily that Emmer was a, uh, uh, the wrong choice uh, because he didn't support, among other things, Trump's efforts to overturn the election. So by the time this podcast comes out, there actually may be a House speaker. And <laughs> I um, haven't expressed this much, um, I don't know what the right word is, because I don't, you know, I'm not personally invested, but just confidence that it actually may happen this time. I have not been confident that the other people who went to the floor, um, Jim Jordan, um, Steve Scalise did not go to the floor. Tom Emmer did not go to the floor. Um, but those were the three other nominees. Never was confident they could get to 17. Mike Johnson of Louisiana became the speaker nominee Tuesday night after Emmer's four-hour flameout. And um, Mike Johnson is a conservative from Louisiana. He is vice chair of the House Republican Conference. He's someone who's not well known, but a lot of kind of insiders have said he's kind of a candidate that could kind of sneak in there. And he got the vote last night. And it looks like he's got a lot of support there. Unlike the Emmer, Scalise and Jordan, who immediately when they became the GOP nominee, there were people who said, I will not support them. And it was quick and it was vocal. That is not happening with Mike Johnson. So um, there will be a vote around noon on today, which is Wednesday. Um, if he doesn't get to 217, which is a majority of the House, there will possibly be more rounds. But there's a lot of speculation that he could get to 217 on ballot one. So we'll be watching to see what happens at noon. Patricia, we, we do want to point out in looking at his resume that Mike Johnson was one of the leaders in Congress of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. So he immediately has favor from Trump on his uh, uh, nomination. Yeah, he also really came to Trump's attention um, when he defended Donald Trump during his impeachment trial, was such a vocal defender in the House that he went on to be a member of the team to defend him in the Senate. So he has he has come to Donald Trump's attention um, for his vocal defense of the former president. And we know that Donald Trump played a really important role in sinking the nomination of Tom Emmer, um, as Tia said. And so uh, it does kind of feel like this also might just be a war of attrition where they're churning through their potential hopefuls. They've gone through so many ambitious people. They're just all their careers are all kind of dead on the side of the road at this point. Now they're down to Mike Johnson. I would say one other 
asset he brings is that he has not yet been, um, he's really practically unknown on the national level. Mm -hmm. He has not been demonized. He is not sort of like the evil villain on MSNBC yet, although I'm sure he soon will be if he is elevated to speaker. So he just doesn't have that kind of baggage that Jim Jordan did. He's also relatively new to Congress. He's in his seventh year. He just hasn't he doesn't have a lot of enemies the way Jim Jordan has certainly had plenty of time to accrue. And um, the the twist will be if he is the speaker, he just doesn't have a lot of legislative experience. And so uh, Punchbowl News had a, just a fascinating analysis this morning that this will give Steve Scalise, who was also tossed to the side as not speaker material, he will immediately accrue an immense amount of power because he does know the rules. He knows where all the bodies are buried. He knows how to push legislation, how to negotiate with the White House. He's done all of this before. And Johnson would have to rely on a, right. on a steady hand as in that case. As his second in command. As majority. Yes. Right. His second in command as majority leader. I also want to point out, because people don't know Mike Johnson, Democrats are going to, number one, they don't know how he's going to work with them. You got to remember, he's got to work with the Senate Um Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, you had Republican senators saying they don't know him. Um, and so the White House, which, of course, is Biden and led by Democrats. Um, so there are a lot of question marks as to what type of speaker he will be. But as Patricia pointed out, he's known, best known for his efforts to help overturn the 2020 election. He kind of came from the conservative legal um, think tank kind of sphere before he was in Congress. And so I want to read Hakeem Jeffries, which is the House Democratic leader. The tweet he just sent as we're recording, it says the twice impeached former president, of course, that's Donald Trump, ordered House Republicans to stop Tom Emmer and elevate a top election denier. Is anyone surprised that they complied? So in that way, he's not only putting Mike Johnson in the category of election deniers, which he is, but connecting it back to Donald Trump and again, connecting it back to the stakes of 2024. And we're going to see a lot of that from Democrats again as we head into another very pivotal election that not only will decide who's president, but the balance of power in Congress. Tia, has the Georgia delegation said anything specific about Mike Johnson? They've sort yes. of split up on some of these past nominees. Yes. So of the members of the Georgia delegation who have been public, they are supporting Mike Johnson. Barry Loudermilk put out a tweet supporting Mike Johnson. Um, Austin Scott, who ran for speaker twice, mm -hmm. ran um, Tuesday, um, didn't <laughs> made it three to, today to Wednesday? The, yes, today's oh Wednesday. <laughs> Austin Scott was a nominee for speaker about 24 hours ago, and he made it to the third ballot. Um, and that's the that was the round of votes where Emmer uh, got the majority vote. Um, but Austin Scott put out a tweet saying he supports Mike Johnson. Um, there have been no public, um, really no one, no members of the House, period, have publicly said, I will not vote for him. Now, there were a few who voted present during a temperature check last night, and there were several dozen, maybe like 25 or so absences last night. So those who voted present, are they willing to support Mike Johnson now? Are they not? There were three um, of those 25 or so who were absent. Are any of those just 
not going to support Mike Johnson? We don't know. But so far, no one has come out and said, I will not be supporting Mike Johnson at noon. And that's different. Uh, Andrew Clyde, who represents the hardliners, he wrote on Twitter, Mike Johnson is a rock solid conservative constitutional lawyer and man of integrity. He'll make a fantastic wow. speaker of the House. Okay. And we know Andrew Clyde was one of those people. He didn't support Kevin McCarthy at first. He was a little iffy on some of the others. So um, he didn't support Emmer, for example. So it looks like from all kind of aspects, there is support for Mike Johnson. It, I mean, again, it's the most hopeful that House Republicans have appeared that they can actually get someone elected on the floor. Teal, if you don't mind, let's go back to Tom Emmer just for a minute and the Georgia delegation where the culture wars uh, played out uh, it, it, among some members who were opposed to Emmer, one of them being Rick Allen. What did Rick Allen say about why he would not support so this was so we got to go all the way back eons ago to that 9 a.m. meeting on Tuesday where House Republicans <laughs> met behind closed doors for a candidate form. Well, no, not a candidate form for the nomination speeches. So um, what was reported, I think, by Punchbowl News, who we get I get all of my inside tips from, <laughs> is that. During, I can't remember if it was during the nomination speeches or whether it was during the candidate forum, which was Monday night. But at some point, Rick Allen, who's the Republican from Augusta, basically confronted Tom Emmer because he has voted in the past in support of uh, same-sex gay marriage. And he said, you need to get right with God. You don't have to worry about getting right with me. I don't support you, but you need to get right with God. Did he say God or did he say Jesus? And, and uh, there is a find, subtle difference let there. Let me that see I'm if I can find it. The reporting says he said Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Okay, right with Jesus. My bad. Let me get. You need to get right with Jesus. And so that is indicative. And he was not the only one. Marjorie Taylor Greene said she didn't support Emmer in in not only because Emmer supported gay marriage, but also because Emmer did not vote to certify the 2020 election. He did vote to certify I'm sorry, the he did, 2020 he election. Vote, he did not vote to overturn the election the way Marjorie Taylor Greene and other Trump supporters wanted. You're right. Um, so, but the gay marriage thing became, again, there's this whole conservative talking sphere on social media but on cable that helped tank Steve Scalise they were backing Jim Jordan and then they helped tank Tom Emmer and over and over what became playing out as negatives for Emmer was pulling up these old votes on gay marriage and continuing to say he's not supportive enough of Trump because he would not overturn the election. Very quickly, Patricia, um, one of the things we, we know about Mike Johnson, or we think we know, is that he is not particularly in favor of aid to Ukraine, which could expand the Republicans' uh, uh, resistance to voting for that support. Well, I think there's already a good bit of resistance yeah. in the Republican House. Yeah. Um, the Republican Senate is quite a different story, as is the White House. And so if uh, Mike Johnson does become the speaker, negotiating a package like that will be an early, very difficult test for him. Ah, uh, Patricia Murphy just gets it in under the wire. Thank you for today, Patricia and Tia Mitchell. I'm Bill Nygut. 
That's all the time we have for today's podcast. We're now releasing new episodes every weekday. So look for new additions to hit your podcast app sometime around one o'clock every afternoon. All of this leads up to the Monday, October 30th debut of our new Politically Georgia radio show, which will air Monday through Friday mornings at 10 on WABE. That's only five or six days away. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.